This is 508, a show about Worcester. It's August the 17th, 2018. I am Mike Benedetti, the co-host, and this is Brendan Mellican, the co-host. Hi, Brendan. How are you doing? How's it going, brother? Uh, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Um, I got a list of things I want to talk about this week. Hit me with your list, Mike. So my list is I want to talk about a NIMBY study. I want to talk about Holden Man, and I want to talk about clergy abuse. Mm -hmm. Also, if we want to go into our dead letter box section where we argue with dead people, we could talk about Worcester's greatest needs circa 1901. Okay. I'm curious if you want to talk about either the Wausau or powwow during the show. Uh, yeah, but we can dabble in bowl. I mean, I don't know that there's that much to offer on either, right? Either right. front. I mean, it's so there's a baseball team likely to come to Worcester. That's actually, from my perspective, it's kind of rad. I don't know. It's, I'm not even much of a sports fan. Totally get all the arguments uh, against public funding for stadiums. Get them 100%. Also played probably 10 million hours of SimCity as a kid, and I fully understand the idea that every once in a while you got to throw up a stadium to get your residents to realize they live, to forget that they live next to the uh, coal plant. You, so, can't, you can't argue with the logic of SimCity. You can never part. argue with it. No, it's, I mean, I, it's either this. Like, our options right now are either we put up a stadium or we send in that big Godzilla-looking thing to just destroy the whole city and start over again. Yeah, because we have this giant brownfield there. And because we got rid of the entire native population, the folks that we would normally rely upon to burn us to the ground. It's a hard life. It's a hard life. Um, Holden Man. We have Holden Man this week, Brendan. Holden Man is back. Holden Man gets five years for Worcester sandwich shop robberies. Why was not, Why was Holden Man not uh, up for robbing uh, sandwich shops in Holden? I don't know. Maybe there's a there's lot of sandwich enough. shops out in Holden. You'd think they had more cash on hand, too. I read this story, and for the amount of effort they put into strong-arm robberies, uh, they didn't really make a great return on investment. No, I mean, you know, th- this gets back to this This gets back to this claim that I've read. There was an academic study, I should, I should bring this on the show, that um, the idea that we have that there are these master thieves out there, mm. you know, that you, you have a Danny Ocean or whatever, you know, you have these guys out there who it's only when they do one last job that they finally get caught for being a thief. Right. It kind of is not really a real thing that there's almost nobody in prison who was an active thief longer than like two years. Mm. So one possibility is that there are these master thieves and that they're a completely different class of people and they never get sent to prison. And the other possibility is that you can be a thief for about two years on average before you get caught. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think the only I thing... I kind of buy the second one. Yeah, no, I, I think the only time you might see a little bit of a wrinkle in that argument is in probably in areas like uh, New England, right, where we had really, really odd sort of old school mob presences a little bit longer, organized crime presences a little bit longer uh, throughout the last hundred years than other large cities did yes. that were still doing things like uh, armored car jobs and whatnot. So maybe they got a little bit squeaked a little bit more out of their career because there was more of an institution around them, a black market institution. Sure. But they still all go to prison. <laughs> sure. Well, and, and maybe that's less of being a master thief and more of just uh, having an organization which yeah. pays off the cops. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's, anything, not, it's not it's no George Clooney situation. No, it's not master thieves. It's terrible security, right? Like even like the the, the Stuart Gardner heist and whatnot, right? Like, I mean, that's the sort of thing you really look at the the picture of, of what happened. Like you and I probably could have pulled that off. You know, if we gave it a little bit of thought, there was little to no security in existence at the time. That's, it used to be way easier to be an art museum thief than it is now. Which is, I'll, I'm going to be honest, I, I hope this doesn't put me on a list. I've always found that to be like the most romantic form of crime imaginable. There was a story circulating just a week ago that like, it was uh, like a guy or a, someone died in Arizona, or I think it was Arizona, okay. and they found just like this priceless yes. painting that had been missing for like 60 years. It was and, in these couple's house. Yeah. And there was good circumstantial evidence that this couple actually 
had been involved with this art theft and that some gigantically valuable painting they just kept around the house. And to me, that's just like the most novel thing in the world that like, you know, because it's because well, because most art in the world today is used for uh, money laundering or tax evasion. Right. Um, and occasionally used as a weird investment vehicle. And there's almost nobody who's buying art at a large scale because they love art. So the idea of saying I'm going to steal a 15 million dollar painting because it's beautiful. And that's the part that I've always found to be so romantic, right? Like, and, and again, and I, please, FBI, I, I'm not a concern. But the uh, FCC, maybe. FBI, no. But yeah, just the idea that, like, you know, this is be- this is a beautiful thing and the sort of, like, bizarro philosophy that because it's a beautiful thing, it needs to be free. Unfortunately, that goes sideways when you realize, well, it can't really be free. It's going to have to hide behind this door for, in, in our uh, little bungalow for the next 60 years. But yeah, it's nonetheless, nonetheless. Moving on to your list. We were talking last week about not in my backyard, mm-hmm. yes in my backyard. Sure. The way that there are probably uh, public policy things that we could do that would increase the amount of housing stock and thus increase the amount of fo- affordable housing, but that frequently, um, whether or not somebody appreciates the wisdom of these, that their identity as a homeowner frequently makes them still kind of oppose them because it's like going to undermine your housing prices. Surprisingly and amazingly, we have an article here from August the 7th by Andrew Hall and Jesse Yoder of Stanford, who maybe were listening to our show. Does homeownership influence political behavior evidence from administrative data? This study, and this might be a preprint, I'm not sure. This study, here's the abstract. Does owning property influence how individuals engage in the political process? I bet you can guess right now. Yes, it does. This is a fundamental question in political economy and a timely one given recent interest in understanding nimbyism and the political influence of homeowners. We combine deed-level data on homeownership with administrative data on voter turnout in local and national elections for more than 18 million individuals in Ohio and North Carolina. Using a difference in differences design, we find that buying a home leads individuals to participate substantially more in local elections on average. We also collect data on local ballot initiatives, and we find that the voter turnout boost is almost twice as large in times and places where zoning issues are on the ballot. Hmm. Additionally, the effect of home ownership increases with the price of the home purchase, suggesting that asset investment may be an important mechanism for the participatory effects. Overall, the results suggest that individual economic circumstances importantly influence political beliefs and behavior, and it suggests that homeowners have special influence in American politics, in part because their ownership motivates them to pay attention and to participate. Yeah. Well, that makes perfect sense. Yes. I mean, it makes perfect sense, at least in the context of, like, say, a city like Worcester or most of New England, where so much of your local revenue stream comes from uh, property owners, right? Like the, your property tax base is basically what you know fun, what greases the wheels of your local uh, machine from a not a political perspective, but from a government and administrative perspective. Yes. So I think you know I'm sure it's probably buried somewhere in that study, but it's also a two-way street, right? Because it's not just that being a homeowner suddenly inspires you to be more engaged with your community. You're much more likely to be engaged by your community as a homeowner or a business owner, especially when there's property involved. Yes. I, I think that the one interesting thing um, from the study that's not totally obvious is that um, they say that obviously there's a combination of reasons why buying a home might increase your interest. One is, well, now you're really invested in just living yeah. in the community, and part of it is, well, now you've got a large 
financial investment in the community. Mm -hmm. So how much of it is my family is really tied to this place and how much of it is my quarter million dollars is really tied to this place. And by looking at the fact that home value, that home increasing home values increase um, this voter turnout effect, they do show that a big part of it is just the financial part yeah. of it. But which without makes, you reading the sense. entire study, there's, I mean, there's a lot of things that you'd have to unpack on that front as well, too. Like, again, just thinking from a local level, obviously anecdotal, but, um, you know, I, I was always, I, I grew up in a family, in a household of public educators, right? Or, yes. Uh, so administrators and educators, uh, family really, not just my, my household. So I, I never really had the opportunity to take ideas like public education for granted. I was it just something that was normal. As I got older, especially got older with friends that I grew up with, uh, and we all started having, having kids, buying homes and whatnot, that's one of those things that always kind of struck me as odd, that people really tend not to give that much thought to how a public education system functions until it impacts them, usually by way of having children and needing to plan that out. Yes. In around here, you know, you can see that firsthand with the number of people who are born, raised, multi-generational in Worcester. As soon as they have kids, even though they might own a home, home suddenly they turn into Holden Man. Um, you know, people peel They out. start robbing sandwich shops. And a, and a lot of it is because of, uh, you know, misunderstandings or uh, poor understandings of how fantastic our public education system is. But, you know, that's a motivator. But I think it goes a step further, directly, directly tied into what you're talking about here as well. You also then realize that, oh, because I'm a homeowner, now I'm, I'm a formal uh, taxpaying stakeholder, uh, not just a philosophical stakeholder in that public education system. So you're getting kind of almost double uh, interest in investment, both from a child uh, perspective as well as uh, from a funding perspective. That... The engagement, that's not surprising, I don't think. Yeah. No. Anyway, it's, it's good to see that somebody's, somebody validated. I there was know. a good article that just yeah. came across my, uh, my, my, my eyeballs today. I believe it was The Globe uh, about uh, Yimbyism as well, and they actually used that in the title. Uh, the, a lot of the movements taking place nationally uh, surrounded around the idea of activist groups um, organizing to say yes to uh, new forms and new uh, ways of thinking about housing in their backyard um, to kind of balance out what is uh, happening in terms of people getting priced out. And it was a lot of it was structured around Boston, uh, the new tower. They just did the uh, topping off ceremony a couple of days ago. But I mean, the, the, the sale price of the apartments is $40 million, right? Mm. So um, I think the Mayor Walsh is doing a pretty good job of trying to make sure people understand that, you know, it's the revenue stream that comes from those $40 million apartments over time is what provides the revenue stream necessary to meet their goals for building a significant number of affordable housing units uh, right. over time. Okay. Um, but it's also, you know, get, keeping a lot of activists uh, who are concerned uh, about the, the prices of housing um, engaged in that conversation as well, because as, as of right now, it seems like the $40 million price point is a little bit more common uh, than, say, the, uh, the, the, the affordable uh, price point, whatever that bar is. This is 508, Worcester's Libertarian Voice. We'll be back in a moment with more. I hope so. It's an ordinary day in Worcester, Massachusetts. But wait, look, down on the ground, it's a germ, it's a worm, it's 508, bursting from the subterranean depths of Wormtown like the mighty Shai Halud. It's 508, a show about Worcester. You're listening to Unity Radio, broadcasting with 100,000 milliwatts of power on 102.9 FM and streaming at WorcesterMag.com. You can call in live at 508 471 
5265 and thanks to the mighty Gabrielle Powers for engineering today's show. What else do you have on your list? Um, so the other thing that the other thing that I have on my list. So we have Worcester's greatest needs, and we have this uh, clergy sex abuse mm. stuff. Uh, I want to talk to you about this. Um, you know, uh, I think that 2018, in a symbolic sense, may be seen as the year that Worcester became a post-Catholic city because this is the year that we lost both Notre Dame and Our Lady of Mount Carmel churches. Mm. That those two churches are not, uh, you know that important in the bigger scheme of being a Catholic in Worcester, but that if we were a Catholic city, we would not have lost these two churches. Hmm. So this is a, you know, a symbol of a trend that's unrelated to those two churches. Those churches are not ca- a cause. They're just a side effect, but they're a very obvious side effect. I get you on the Mount Carmel front, but just considering the time frame that uh, Notre Dame has been closed already, didn't, doesn't that make us at least half uh, post-Catholic like 10 years ago? Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. Sure, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's not like it's uh, it's not like it's uh, one, one year we're Catholic and one year we're not. Yeah. It's just like, you know, you look at Woodstock and you're like, oh, Woodstock is an important. That's the moment in time. Yeah. Woods, or Altamont. Altamont's <laughs> the moment that the 60s end, you know. Yeah, no, I just, I yeah, I, I just... This I, is the Altamont of Worcester Catholicism. Some, semi-snarky clarification is all I was looking for, because I was trying to, in my head while I was talking, I was thinking, like, well, if the, if the Pope just decided to, like, pack things up and skip town out of the Vatican and, you know, it was just an empty em, em, empty city uh, plaza for, for a number of years, like, is Catholicism still alive and well, or did it really end of the day that they locked the doors and decided to just turn it into a tourist attraction? I'm sure they would just take it to Avignon at that point. No, I mean just really wrap it up. So we're done here. Yeah. 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 Well, I, you know, I the I mean the other the other angle here is that 2018 may well be the practical dividing line of America as a post-Catholic country. We've had a whole new wave of. Um, Exposure of clergy yeah. sex abuse. We've seen in the state of Pennsylvania. We have a grand jury report about 300 priests raping and otherwise abusing a thousand kids over mm-hmm. a period of decades. We have seen uh, Cardinal McCarrick in Washington D.C. step down over uh, long rumored and coming close to substantiated uh, rumors over his own bad behavior. Um, closer to home, here we have an article from the Telegram and Gazette: Assumption College President Cesario. To oversee allegations of sexual misconduct at seminary, Assumption College President Francesco Cesario will oversee an investigation into allegations of misconduct made by seminarians in Boston. The Archbishop of Boston, Cardinal Sean O'Malley, says in a statement on Friday he's unable to verify or disprove the allegations about St. John's Seminary, but called them a source of serious concern. O'Malley has not provided details about the allegations, but one man who identified himself as an ex-seminarian says in a blog post that he witnessed inappropriate behavior, including sexual misconduct and alcohol abuse. So part of this, Brendan, is just me feeling like um, like I can't imagine the second wave not hitting Worcester. Like I can't imagine. I mean, you know, like people have compared this to Me Too in a way where like there's just the straw that breaks yeah, yeah. the camel's back. And it just feels like the camel's back is going to get broken again in this city. Look, I, this is especially when uh, you're talking the Pennsylvania uh, cases moving forward. I, it's just some really ugly stuff, right? Like, I mean, if you go back on a longer, a long enough timeline, and you know, uh, when you're talking rumor mills, uh, when you're talking, uh, you know, the Globe uh, Spotlight series that really uncovered uh, church abuse here in New England, but primarily Worcester, Boston, um, 
that I think was opening a door that was really new to a lot of people. Like I think you, you genuinely had a lot of people that, including Catholics, who like this was the first time that something that was really, really ugly in their house was being exposed in a clear way that was no longer deniable and you couldn't just ignore. But we're so much further along, to your, to, I think, in comparison to your use of uh, the Me Too um, movement. When you read what's happening in Pennsylvania... It's the same sort of tone being thrown back out, the, whatever, two decades later by the diocese, by their representatives. And that's, what, to me, what makes it really, really ugly, tone deaf, this and missing the point. Like, I mean, I was reading this morning a, a, a statement that was just put out that, you know, it, it, it's important that people need to understand that most of these victims were not actually raped. Uh, they were not, they, they were molested, they were groped, but there was no penetration. And it's like, what? come on. Like, uh, yeah, how, you know, um, okay, that's important I get to it, know. Yes. Thank that's you. Imp- now I feel great about that's it. That's super important to know in a courtroom uh, when it comes to deciding how long somebody's going to be put in prison. Uh, but it's not germane to the conversation. Do we or do we not actually have a problem with inside of inside of a large institution that has gone from being maybe a regional problem? A couple of weeks back, we were you and I were discussing the differences between the number of allegations, say, in the Worcester diocese versus where you grew up. Right. Um, some of that might have to do with population density. A lot of it probably has to do though with the ease of being able to slide people in and out of a diocese, a foreign diocese, without much notice because. People come and go all the time in a large diocese in terms of priests. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's just the tone deafness is just stunning to me. And um, I can't believe that's going to end well. I, so here's my question. So, I, you know, I, like I said, I don't want to be volunteer uh, volunteer fixers on this week's show. Mm-hmm. I really don't want to um, – as, I mean, I love the I love the Catholic Church. I don't know all the diocese of Worcester. I don't have that much emotional mm-hmm. connection to it. I love the Catholic Church. I'm not going to leave the Catholic Church as a result of any of this stuff. Um, but in part because I feel like in order for somebody to continue being a Catholic in the decades and generations to come in this country, people are going to have to probably embrace a different kind of Catholicism, yeah. whatever that means. And I feel like just because of accidents of birth, mm-hmm. I already grew up in a different kind of Catholicism. It's not a hard emotional. It's terrible to read about these things, but it's not hard emotionally for me to stay a Catholic. I would not be surprised if 90% of you know people in Worcester who are Catholic stop being Catholic. I mean, maybe they would have already done that 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. But reading this stuff is just like, you know, it's just like uh, you know somebody does something terrible and then they say, "Hey, man, give me a second chance," and then you find out like, "Wow, you really just like." Uh, didn't take it. You, well, I, you know, another, so like, so that's where I feel like if you're not fed up by the initial round of stuff and you're an ordinary sort of Worcester Catholic, I don't know how you stay with the church. So my question, you should say what you want to say, but my sure. my core question to you is, like, let's do the hypothetical that 90% of Worcester Catholics leave the Catholic Church. What does the city look like then? It doesn't change at all. Because, I mean, okay. you know, and, and I, I say that only because I feel in the 90s when, you know, for all intent and purposes, I left the Catholic Church. I was raised Catholic. And yes. I, I would say that the majority of, you know, my family, at least in my generation, did as well, at least in the sense of becoming, you know, the the, 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 the ca- cafeteria Catholics, right? Like, which I think sure. New England was always famous for in the first place. For me, it was a little bit more personal. And, you know, I, I went through my angsty phase where, you know, wanted to be a diehard atheist. Now I'm just really happy not to settle on any sort of... Of, uh, I don't want to be on anyone's team, Mike. Uh, I'm happy that's, to acknowledge that there's 
probably yes. something bigger in the universe that I'm uh, capable of understanding, and we'll figure it out when the time uh, when the when, when the time comes. You're you're non you're non-binary. I <laughs> non-binary, but it's it's also because you know again other conversations we've had in the past. I mean, you, you don't have to look far down the uh, philosophical or religious uh, tree to realize that we're kind of all shooting for the same stuff, right? Like be good people, try not to be bad people, and don't hurt anybody along the way. These aren't really difficult concepts to grasp. I do think, especially in today, in today's age, um, I, I question, you know, the necessity beyond beyond the philosophy of Catholicism specifically, right? The necessity of uh, being labeling yourself as being part of a, a specific team and hold true to those kind of ideals, right? Like, I mean, if you're hedging your bets and you know you're, you're worried that you know day comes and maybe you get some uh, so, some work to do that the big guy is going to bring down the hammer on you, well, sure, Pascal, I can buy that. Pascal's but wager. I'm not much on what on hedging bets on on the unknown, so it's uh, yeah, I'm, I'm rather comfortable with just kind of winging it and liking to think at the end of the day I'm, I'm not too bad of a person but i do i think it's i think your point your question is valid like i don't people i think should be fleeing if they're not there because of a really personal connection to the church one that goes deep into philosophy personal philosophy but two i don't think anything changes because i think again you go back to the 90s my generation I think for the most part even the folks that are still showing up on Sundays or Easter Mass or Christmas or whatnot, they definitely fit the mode of uh, the cafeteria Catholics, and it doesn't change anything almost, about... Uh, almost every Catholic. Is, let me tell you this. Almost every Catholic, wherever they are politically, is a cafeteria Catholic. And I'm not saying that in a negative way. I'm not knocking any anyone's level of participation. I think, and if, and if anything, I'm just trying to point out that no no bad is going to... This is like when we go back to our original uh, debates over same-sex marriage in, in Massachusetts, right? Like, and and the, 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 those in opposition, I mean, you know, frogs are going to be falling from the sky. People are going to be getting married to their pets. Like, it was it was crazy time in terms of the fears that people had right. about what would happen if this one thing changed. I'm, I'd like to think that uh, I've got enough faith in humanity that absolutely nothing bad will happen because people oh. walked away from a philosophy. What I'm might change? Suggesting, we might lose I'm some more architecture, though. I'm not suggesting that things will be Bad, or that people will hmm. start being worse to each other if they're less Catholic. It's not clear to me that being a Catholic uh, makes you a good person. In no, the of way course, that that's my point. Right. My, I guess my question is just sort of like in the more political, social, cultural way. You don't feel like a Worcester that has, like, the Catholic Church basically shuts down. You're like, ah, wake up the next day and things kind of look the same. Everything's the same. I mean, there is no question that right up until I was a child that, you know, the city of Worcester from, say, a political, we'll stick with that one, a political perspective, a bureaucratic perspective, was dominated by uh, what we used to always joke as uh, the the, the Worcester ethnic, right? Like, which Mm -hmm. was Irish and Italian Catholics. That was the makeup of the entirety of the city, with rare exception. Um, But that was also a byproduct of the, the generational switch from like those two uh, groups coming into the city and then finding their way into power and whatnot. It's not because that's what the city was. It's because that's what the city had become over time. And we're in the midst of another huge round of changeover, both on a local political level, from a bureaucratic level. Um, so yeah, I don't see anything changing at all. It's, uh, yeah. So so maybe we've been in the post we've been just such in the post Catholic era for like you say twenty years or thirty years or whatever such that the Catholic Church is going away almost completely 
doesn't affect. Hey, look, as, I, as, as, Steve, as Steve Siddle once said of the colleges in Worcester, they have the cultural relevance of an Applebee's. You're saying the Catholic Church in Worcester has the cultural relevance of an, relevance of an Applebee's. At one point in time, I would I, I would say no. It had probably more cultural relevance than anything in the city of Worcester because it, it was the home in the foundation of so many communities. Again, like going back 100 to 120 right, years, right. the Irish and the Catholics coming in. It was the churches that allowed them to come together and fight, uh, the, fight KKK. the KKK. <laughs> but yeah, today, I mean, what what really? I, I'd be curious again to hear from outsiders, and not 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 members of the clergy, but like folks who 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 do go to church every Sunday. Like the relevancy beyond that personal experience to the city as a whole. Nah, I don't. I have, you know, I, I mean, I, I got two minutes. Go ahead. You know, I one of the reasons I ask you is as a, as a lifelong Worcesterite. Like I have, I mean, I have no sense mm-hmm. of any of this stuff. Like as a, even somebody who's lived here almost twenty years now, I have no sense of what. And really, of what it means for the average Worcester person, what the Catholic <laughs> Church means, or anything like that. Like the idea of the idea of growing up in an area where the Catholic Church is the main religion, mm-hmm. rather than this sort of rogue guerrilla underground organization, yeah. is so foreign to my own experience that I can sort of picture myself in it. But I like I have no idea what a post-Catholic Worcester would look like. Maybe or that, less, and even more post-Catholic Worcester would look like. Maybe that is the one thing that changes before we go into the break. Is uh, I've always been shocked to realize how many people uh, who I grew up with in the Catholic Church in Worcester don't realize, to your last point, uh, that this is not the norm throughout the United States of America, right, where the Catholic Church is the dominant force in any one given area. It's like you've got New England, you've got Southern California, you've got a stretch of Florida, and in both of the – a couple other pockets throughout uh, flyover country where there are dense populations of, uh, of Catholics. But – Really, those are just made of people who started in New England and moved moved elsewhere. Uh, the norm are all varying degrees of pro- Protestantism, yeah. um, and you know whatever. So yeah, maybe that's the change. People realizing, oh, well, this, this this isn't what everyone else is doing. Like we have options. Yeah, that is, I think, going to be a, an interesting this round, man. So you reading into the the Pennsylvania stuff again too, like the the number of folks that really were able to. Uh, steamroll investigations by uh, making bizarro claims of anonymity and whatnot, that stuff that nobody, you know, the best way to put it is, if anyone out there is feeling apologist, right, uh, forget about religion for a second. I think the two, the things that we talk about the most in the country right now probably revolve around um, concepts like collusion and conspiracy. We're hearing these words constantly uh, in, in, in the political universe now. Stop for a minute and, and, and realize that you know we're talking about the same kinds of uh, potential crimes taking place in just a different universe. Yeah. And then ask yourself if you're being equally apologetic for the political side as you might be for the religious side. It is okay, and this is, I know nuance scares people, Mike, but it is okay to be able to acknowledge that 99% of this thing is awesome and does no harm, only good to uh, society at all. But this one little part over here, like, this is this is bad. And, like, if we don't deal with this one little part, like, quick, fast, hard, and maybe even because of the level of responsibility involved, to your point again, bringing up the Me Too movement, like, there's going to be a lot of shame. And, you know, if... I, I'm at the point I can't where, believe that people... I mean, I can't believe that people... 
Yeah, I've said this on this show before. I, like, I can't believe that people didn't deal with this, didn't rip off the Band-Aid when the moment happened. Yeah, just from the preservation of the institution perspective. If you're cool with Harvey Weinstein being harassed every time he goes out for a salad uh, these days, then you damn well better be cool with uh, Cardinal O'Malley uh, getting harassed the exact same way every time he walks out of his door. Uh, that sh they're, they're equal. And again, a lot of it comes down to uh, the simple fact that we cannot allow anyone, regardless of who they are and who they claim their bosses, to be uh, allowed to hurt other human beings and then kind of just wash their hands of it. Yeah. This is the water, and this is the well. Drink full and descend. The horse is the, is the white of the eye, and dark within. within. This is the water, and this is the well. Drink full and descend. The horse is the white of the eye, and dark within. And this is the 508 Show. I'm Mike Benedetti, the co-host, and this is Brendan Milliken, the co-host. Hi, Brendan. Hey, Michael. How are you? Good. I just want to say... Um, I don't even know what I was. I feel like I want. I feel like I feel like I could talk about this sex abuse thing forever. But maybe we should go to this old Worcester magazine. We article. should because we're gonna we're gonna bail early because there's a there's a big announcement if the you announce, haven't already heard the announcement about <laughs> this what what, it, what it's gonna look like to get the Wasox in Worcester. We're announcing an announcement. It's gonna be live on this radio station. Uh, this is well, before you go into this yeah. real quick. I just have a request to make to our audience, and I mean all of you. If any of you are graphic designers, so it looks like we're already going with woo socks, right? And it makes sense. It was the paw socks. We're going woo socks. I have. I am now firmly in camp. There is such a thing as too much Worcester, so I think there's potential to get a little bit more creative there. Probably not going to happen this time. Um, but Worcester, the the woo thing doesn't need to be everywhere. We can probably agree to sure, that. Sure. Um, that said, if we're going woo somebody out there needs to actually do it right and combine the Wu-Tang logo with uh, the yes, Paw Socks. It yes. actually has to be Wu Socks. And, yeah. Like a W-U, Wu. Not exactly. Because, come no. on, W-O-O, we don't need that. We right. don't need that. Uh, this is an article. This is a section of a show called Dead Letter Box, where we argue with dead people. This is from the very first edition of a magazine called The Worcester Magazine. No connection to our current Worcester Magazine. From January 1901... Brendan, it was devoted to good citizenship and municipal development. And their first article is called Worcester's Greatest Needs. Again, this is an article where you should just interrupt me as needed. I will interrupt you consistently. The, the members of the Worcester Board of Trade were asked to send the Worcester Magazine their views in brief form upon this question. What, in your opinion, is the most pressing need of the city of Worcester in its municipal development and life, and what should be the attitude or action of the Board of Trade with reference to it? This request has been responded to by several gentlemen whose replies are given herewith. These letters indicate that the citizens of Worcester are alive to the needs of the city. Some of these needs have been recognized as such for many years. If keeping everlastingly at it brings success, there ought to be grounds for hope that Worcester may eventually have better paved streets, an adequate hotel, industrial education facilities, better business buildings, no grade crossings, more dignity attached to the mayor's office, better freight facilities, higher and more virile citizenship, more intimate relations with surrounding towns, etc. Excuse me, Mike. I yes. need to interrupt you for a second. What year did you say this was written in? 1901. So what you're telling uh, you're telling the audience is that Worcester has made zero progress since 1901. Well, this, so uh, I mean, let me just finish this. It is uh, so so. 
this is this then follows by all the letters that they received back okay. from, and, and identifying, for example, Rufus Rufus B. Fowler, Esquire, President of the Board of Trade. Um, but that little litany that they had in there, I think, is a good summary of the letters that they got from these couple dozen uh, uh, gentlemen who are cap- captains of industry or the law or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, better paved streets. I think, do we have better paved streets than in 1901? We probably do. But I think, you know, you know what the takeaway from this, before you even get into the responses, Go is going to be? Go for it. That, and I think this is something that social media has made it really hard to put a finger on, right? Because everything seems awful, right? You, you pull up your Facebook feed, and suddenly <sighs> you're reading about, like, the worst crime imaginable in a part of the world that you hadn't heard about until that story crossed you, and it seems so intimate because it hits you in the same way that something in a local publication would yes. hit you about a local crime 10 years ago, 20 yes. years ago, or whatnot. So everything seems like it's, you know, the wheels are falling off the bus. It weaponizes reality. Social media weaponizes reality. But the, rea- the re- reality par- part of reality is that by any measure, n- there's never been a moment in time where things have ever been w- been better, right? Like, Well, Brendan, we just said better paved streets. What about an adequate hotel? We've got multiple adequate hotels. That's what I'm saying. Like, so you go down the list, it's like, and whether it's, I'm sure there's going to be some social stuff in there. I'm sure there's going to be, it's not to say that everything is perfect today. I think what's genius about what you've already read is a reminder to people that we've always been worried about the exact same things. There's no actual solution to the problem, right? Like every once in a while, a pipe is going to explode and a a guy from Spencer is going to drive his truck into the sinkhole. Uh, You know, every once in a while, a pothole is going to happen. In this time frame, it wasn't necessarily a pothole it was a ruddy uh a rutted muddy road yes. that needed paving and whatnot we do need to pause every once in a while and just acknowledge that uh in terms of society things are kind of magnificent compared to say post-world war uh, pre-world war one worcester so there's one of these things in this list that i'm not sure that we're doing better on i may, maybe half and half not which is higher and more virile citizenship now, we definitely are going to have a higher citizenship because we've legalized marijuana. Sure. But do you, would you say that we have a more virile citizenship than in 1901? Can you define your terms in a... Uh, no, I don't even <laughs> remember who the heck's letter that came out of. I mean, H.H. H. Bigelow, he has a very short letter. His letter is, stop the drinking of intoxicating liquors and the chewing of tobacco. All right. Well, H.H. So H. H. did not get his way. If H.H. H. is still around, there's another meeting coming up next year, uh, next week about the sighting of a recreational marijuana dispensary in Tatnick Square. I'm sure your input would be much appreciated yeah no i'm pretty sure but these are the you could read all of these and i you know i, I think i would have a hard time guessing which ones were written in, in 1901 and which ones were written uh and were submitted to the telegram a week and a half ago i'm as skeptical of the idea of, prog- of progress as the next skeptic of the idea of progress but partially this leads me to wonder other than entertainment value what value is there to debating these things if they're constantly <laughs> I mean I guess the value of debating these things is that maybe we're doing better than we were a hundred years ago yeah but uh, to a certain extent if it's like the roads are still a problem hmm. the dignity of the mayor's office is still a problem our virility is definitely still a problem <laughs> uh, yeah that like from one perspective we've made like you said from one perspective we've made progress and from another perspective we haven't made progress we haven't changed anything right but really we have I mean and that's the the that that's the crazy part, right? Like if, if if we're using those sorts of concepts as the standard unit of measure for uh, the, the the value or the um, the progress within a, a community, we've done pretty well. We've done pretty well. We have. Let me talk about commodities for a second. Go Brent, ahead. What Brent, do you got? Brent crude oil is seventy-two dollars a barrel, unchanged mm-hmm. this week. 
and Bitcoin is $6,500. Not up, been a good week for Bitcoin, up six, Mike. Up 6% on the week. Yeah, but it's, isn't it down like 18 over over between this week and last week? I mean, the reality is it was $6,500 last week, and okay. the only reason it's up 6% is because it's like, what time of the morning hmm. do I uh, do I check it? So, like, probably last week I checked it earlier in the morning, yeah. and it was $6,500, and this week it's $6,500 later in the morning but last week later in the morning mm-hmm. it crashed six percent so yep. it's actually you know well i think the lift volatile. this week was mostly attached to uh square uh allowing trading of bitcoin uh through their cash app uh across all 50 states they opened that just opened that up at the end of last week oh so there was a bit of a lift in terms of accessibility do we need to revisit we had a guest over the winter his name's escaping me right now who was doing some uh christian some, holden yeah he was doing some trading uh and but you know I don't know, like for for others as well, doing some some Holden. Um, do we need to check in with him? Not not from Holden, by the way. Not from Holden, but uh, we, if Christian's around, we should definitely have him back in. He's a great guy. Because it was we, when we talked to him, Bitcoin was kind of at its nearing its peak, and that was about three times what it is right now. It's true. It's true. Oh, I don't know, Brendan. I don't know. This, uh, you know, I have about 1,500 pages printed out here about this clergy sex abuse stuff, but I don't have the heart to talk about it. We don't need to talk about that for hours. But I would love, you know, whether it be comments or people want to uh, get in touch on the side. That, that I think, is your question, what changes? Because I'm sure my my, my uh, experience is similar to others, that, you know, you grow up in a city where most everybody you meet is Catholic, and it kind of becomes a part of your so, both your personal and social identity. Um, I, I would be curious to hear how others answer that question. Maybe I'm just being too kind and saying nothing changes. But, um, yeah. I don't know. 